Hey guys, we're back with another episode of Physique Science Radio. I'm your host, Lane Norton, with my co-host, Sohee Lee. Hi. I'm sorry, Sohee Walsh. That's okay. I gotta get used to that. See, Sohee, <laughs> it even says Lee underneath your little icon I know. on, on well, Skype. Well, actually, so actually um, I'm actually changing my name, my professional name, back to Sohee Lee. So <laughs> you can actually, you can keep calling me Sohee Lee. That's fine. <laughs> you have no idea how much easier that makes it. I know, it. right? It's easier team, for me, too. Yeah, team old man over here. Um, I don't do well with change. Uh, so uh, today we have a really, really special guest for you guys. Um, this is uh, we have Dr. Stuart Phillips, um, and Stu, as as he has let us, he lets us call him that because he's a cool guy. Um, has been somebody I've followed for a long period of time, uh, mainly because a lot of his research kind of was in parallel to the research I was doing when I was in graduate school. And in my opinion, does some of the absolute best work in nutrition and exercise. So I'm not going to sit here and gloat and fanboy too much, but I just want you guys to know when I go to look at research, this is one of the first guys I'm looking at. And so with that, uh, Stu, thank you for being on the show. It's uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I just have to clarify that you called yourself old just now. And that <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure That's what unfair. that makes me but uh, I'll just say older. How's that? <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Well, you know, the, the power lifting and whatnot, I, I constantly, you know, it's funny. I used to be able to just walk in the gym and now it's like a one hour ritual of like foam rolling and stretching and all this other nonsense that I, I, I don't like doing. But <laughs> So I call myself team old man. But um, no, it's it's a real pleasure to have you on. Now, for, for those uh, – for those of our listeners who aren't real familiar with us, can you give us a little bit of background in terms of how you got into research, like your your sport background, all that sort of thing? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I I think most people are maybe under the – it's not a misconception, but they – you know, I've, I've come from an exercise background. And, and to be honest with you, uh, th- that's not necessarily true in terms of my training. I mean, I, I played all kinds of sports when I was younger. I favored – uh, contact sports. I, I, I liked ice hockey. I played a lot of rugby. I played football. Uh, basically, anything where you you know you went bone on bone with somebody, I was <laughs> into. It. So um, most of the lifting experience I had when I was younger was always related to competition in those sports. And mm. you know, I realized at a pretty young age, I, w- I was never really the biggest guy. Um, so to gain some type of advantage, I had to you know, maximize what I had. And so I had a, a propensity to lift. Um, I was probably never the strongest guy. So I, I, I'm famous for saying I had some pretty mediocre physiology, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I worked with what I had. Um, and then my training is actually as a biochemist. So I look at things maybe from a, a fairly reductionist standpoint. And I had to, when I began my, my master's degree, I had to really learn you know what was going on uh with respect to exercise and i was uh, chatting with somebody just the other week doing a radio show and i said one of my first questions when i sat in an ex ex phys class was what what's a vo2 max and uh, <laughs> you know, so i i think that indicates uh, just how naive i was um I, I don't think I ever got into research to and, and thought right at the beginning, you know what, I, I want to be a prof, this is what I want to do. But I knew that I, I enjoyed learning. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, just going to class. Uh, I, I wasn't one of the, I, I, I like school. 
Uh, and at the end of my undergrad and then the end of my master's and then the end of my PhD, it was just, you know, I just don't think I'm done learning. And uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things. So uh, it evolved from there. And it's funny to to think back, but I, I broke my leg playing rugby in the in my senior year of university and it meant that i couldn't play rugby to be honest with you and so i had to find something else to do and so i took a thesis course and uh, honestly when i when i took that i i was just blown away by how cool uh research was and i and that's uh, it's it's a bizarre circumstance that was a true I think watershed moment for me that I went, wow, this is really, you know, and so I look back, I think, God, I haven't broken my leg. I might not be doing what I'm doing. So everything <laughs> happens for a reason. Yeah, it all worked yeah. out. No kidding. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting that you, you kind of came to it that way, Stu, because I'm not all that different. Um, I actually did a, my undergraduate was in biochemistry and I never, like you, like you, I enjoyed school. Um, I wasn't, I wouldn't say supernaturally gifted at classes. I, I really had to study hard, but I just had all these questions. And when I was in my junior year and taking biochemistry, I just can remember the biochemistry professor who I had was wonderful. And he would, I would stay after, cause I was into bodybuilding. And so every day after class, I'm keeping them 10, 15 minutes afterwards. I'm asking them all these questions. Cause in my mind, I'm trying to relate everything back to, to building muscle, you know? And, um, uh, he really fostered a lot of that 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 curiosity. He didn't he didn't get annoyed with me, which is amazing looking back at it. Um, and I, so but by the time I was getting ready to be a senior, I was like, man, I just I'm going to be like quote unquote a professional with a BS in biochemistry. And I don't feel like I know anything. You know, I just had all these unanswered questions. And so and also I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I was like, well, why don't we delay the real world and we can go to school. And, uh, you know, went, went and did nutrition afterwards. And in hindsight, I really feel like doing biochemistry first gave me a real advantage to understand metabolism uh, more so than if I just did nutrition first and then tried to learn the biochemistry of nutrition afterwards. Do you, do you feel that way? I think some people get too specialized too early. And I really tell people, you know, if you want to learn take some basic physiology classes, take some basic like chemistry and biochemistry classes. Like that will help you more. You need that base of understanding. Yeah, I, I do think that it did help me. And I, and I always want to say that it's easier to go from the, the re, sort of reductionist molecular biochemical end build up rather than to go the opposite direction. And it's not that I haven't had some great students who have come from, um, you know, physiology or kinesiology or exercise science backgrounds, but they've honestly had to, when they came to work with me, sort of uh, teach themselves a new way of looking at things. And so, and I have to be honest with you, your story about, um, you know, staying after a lecture and, and occupying, a, you know, your, your professor's time is... Um, it's really it, re it resonates with me more and more. I still I still active in undergraduate teaching, and uh, you know I'm really I try to be. I always I don't always have the time, but I try to be as encouraging of uh, of people like yourself and like I was who just you know kind of wanted to sit around and just talk about stuff. So um, 
I still try and do that with the students, and, and I'll admit to them, anyone who are listening, I, I don't have as much time as I used to, but, <laughs> but it's interesting to, to have that moment where you had, as you say, somebody that just sparked a little interest inside you that kind of made you go, wow, you know, this is this is pretty cool. So, you know, those moments are, are rare, and I, I, and I really... I still try to hopefully engender in some of my students those those types of feelings. That's really cool. I, mean, I think that makes all the difference in the world, um, especially for young scientists to have a professor, you know, because at big universities, professors can be like rock stars, and they don't even, you know, they, a lot of them don't even correspond. So I was fortunate enough to go to a small college for undergrad, and we really had a lot of hands-on. But even in graduate school, like, um, as you know, I, I did my PhD under Dr. Don Lehman, and he was, I mean, he was very busy, but he was really good about making time and really good about making me question everything. And uh, actually, one of the things I wanted to bring up to you, um, kind of diving into research now, um, so we, one of the first studies we ever did, and I remember this being like a, a eureka moment in my science career, um, was we looked at the duration of muscle protein synthesis in response to um, ingestion of whey protein in, in a complete meal. And I just, my hypothesis was, well, leucine's important, so however long leucine stays elevated will be how long protein synthesis stays elevated. And that's not what I found. <laughs> what I found was it, you know, it ran about three hours until it was back to baseline. But leucine was still leucine, and all the plasma amino acids were basically still elevated at three hours. And I kept rerunning the data and rerunning the data. And uh, Dr. Lehman called me and he was like, "Where where are we with this whole duration study? Why is this not done yet?" And I was like, "Well, it, I, it's almost done. It's just the data is wrong." And he's like, "Well, why do you think it's wrong?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, because it doesn't make any sense." And he's like, well, it's not your job to necessarily make sense. It's your job to just collect the data. And, um, yeah. and uh, so I was like, well, well, it doesn't make sense. And I'm telling him why it doesn't make sense. And he said, you are trying to make the data fit your hypothesis. And you need to change your hypothesis to fit the data. And it was like a mind-blowing moment <laughs> where I realized, you know, it's, it's fine to be right. Like, it's cool to be right. But we should care scientists more about getting the right answer. And the reason I bring this up is um, you just recently you've published a few papers, kind of looking at refractory phenomenon. I don't know if you guys call it something different or the, the muscle full effect. In fact, I think you guys just published something recently, which it was it was one of the cool things about my PhD was actually changed the way I ate food because I used to be the whole eat eight meals a day, small, spaced out because you'll keep anabolism elevated. And I looked at that data and I'm like, I I can't. I can't recommend this. Like, if anything, this is making this is making it worse. Can you can you talk about some of the results you guys found in, in terms of you know feeding boas versus you know kind of um, small doses, you know, spaced, and uh, what you think it means practically? Yeah, I I, I agree a hundred percent with what you're talking about. I, I don't think that there's and, and I'm speaking in broad strokes, not just about our work because obviously there's a lot of people that have contributed to this. Right. Uh, Luke Van Loon's lab and Phil Atherton's lab and before Phil, uh, Mike Rennie, etc. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that under just just feeding, you know, a discrete meal, as you point out. Um, and, and tremendous kudos to to Don, uh, you know, your advisor, who's a good friend, is that uh, the muscle switches on, you throw the switch, and it's probably leucine triggered, I don't doubt that, um, and then, 
you get a stimulation of protein synthesis, and then after a while, it turns off. You can call it refractory, you can call it muscle pull, call it whatever you want. But And, and it makes some sense because, uh, as I point out to my students, I said, if, if it didn't, then all you would have to do is an experiment where you, you slid a catheter into somebody and you just infused amino acids forever, and the person would get enormous, right? Exactly. And, and, and so, so something has to shut off. It makes biological sense. So, th- that phenomenon is, it, you know, has been shown now a number of times, and, and I and I think that that's true. Um, in the situation of exercise, what the mus- how the muscle responds, it's it's not that it goes any higher, but the response tends to last a little longer, but it still shuts off. I mean, yeah. it has to again. So uh, this sort of discrete meal feeding to me makes a lot more sense from what we know. And, and admittedly, whenever I talk about this, somebody goes, well, where's the study? And I said, well, there is no definitive. There's never a super definitive study. Of but course. Based on all the lines of evidence that, you know, you're, you guys have generated in, in the rodents and that we've seen from the human models, the discrete meal feeding seems to be the way that the system responds in the most advantageous way. Of course, everybody says, well, where's the long-term data? And right. there, it's, and I have to stress this, it's difficult to show something in the longer term that seems so very clear in the shorter term because yep. there are so many more variables that come in and cloud the picture. And Absolutely. we just can't control them all. And yep. so, I, you know, I, because I can't put people in a, in a box or, <laughs> or, or a lab for, you know, the 12 weeks that they're there, I don't know what they do outside. I don't know how long they sleep. I don't know what all of their other meals look like, whether they're following what I'm doing, whether they're doing something else and, you know, all of the other things that could potentially influence the results. So, the disconnect between short term and long term, which is something that we, you know, and I, I say this, you know, we, we undid it ourselves. I mean, we were the ones who did the study and showed the degree of disconnect that there is, but it, it's there. And I, and, I, and I freely admit that. But again, looking back at the acute data, it makes a lot of sense to, to, to eat meals like you're talking about. I don't think this all day eating perpetual small meal is is. Uh, in any way advantageous or more so than the discrete larger meal, if you like. That's really excellent point. And I, I think, so there's two things. Um, one, one is it's so funny when people go to criticize studies because we live in the age of social media. And I always find it's the people who have never actually done any research themselves. They say, well, well, this study wasn't in bodybuilders or, or, or this study didn't do this. And it's like, no, there isn't one study that explains the entire universe. You're right. You know, it's impossible to do. Like every study has limitations, and that's why important. As scientists, it's important to acknowledge those limitations, which you did. And I tell people, I'm like, there's a reason I did my research in rats, and that's because I wanted to study the mechanisms. And it's much easier to do that when I can keep somebody in a cage and feed them meals. And I mean, we got the rats to the point. We did. A, we actually did a long-term study. Now I'm speaking about unpublished data. <laughs> But the we did a long-term study where we fed different meals with different leucine contents, but same you know isonitrogenous uh, meals, and we were able to train these rats to basically eat everything. Like they were discrete meals three times a day, 
and we didn't have to pair feed because they we taught them how to to meal feed correctly and they didn't they literally didn't spill a drop and we we hand fed them a hundred rats for 12 weeks three meals a day it was it was quite involved um, and we actually were able to show differences small differences but statistically significant differences in muscle mass and you know like you were saying in humans it's just so messy and it's so costly you know if you want to actually have people really, really well controlled in a in a clinical setting. You've got to pay them a lot of money because they've got to basically contribute their lives to it. And I think some people don't understand that. I said that's why I like rats because they'll do what I tell them. Now, obviously, there's limitations to those studies that are inherent, but the rat model has, I think, has been shown to be a pretty good model of protein metabolism. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is you you talked about you know it you know things making sense from a, from the muscle full effect. And uh, it's, it's funny because Layman would always call me in his office and he'd be like, Lane, why do you think, you know, this does this? And I'd be like, oh, come on, man. Like, I just want to get out of here. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he'd always be like, you know, why do you think this does this? And I have to like, he'd, he'd make me, he really challenged me to think critically. And one of the things we came up with, because we looked at, you know, why, why is this happening? Why? Because if leucine's still elevated, we looked at the translation factors and we found that they were still active. Um, there was still increased phosphorylation. Um, we got all the way down to, you know, looking at intracellular levels of amino acids. They weren't falling off. And what we kind of came down to as a hypothesis that we were able to support with some data was that muscle protein synthesis is actually so powerful that it causes a reduction in ATP in the cell um, once it gets going. And so it's the the, at least from what we observed, we think it was the reduction in ATP that was reducing peptide elongation. I don't know if you guys have looked at that or observed that, but uh, it was pretty interesting that it actually ended up being, at least in our in our data, we believe it was an energetics thing, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. You wouldn't want to eat an enormous meal and then just have ATP, you know, just run away ATP depletion in cells. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, your point regarding the ability to control the model there is is key. And I think, um, you know, with the with the model that you guys used, you, you, you have far greater insight into the mechanisms than, than sure. we could have. Well, and again, it's it's sort of, you know, I mean, we, we've we've biopsied people a number of times and, and probably taken more in one protocol than than a lot of other people have. But um, it it's it's taxing for the subjects it's it's taxing for this poor student who has to analyze the data and so we've never do, gone as deep into the mechanisms as you have but it you know it makes some sense to the to from the standpoint of uh looking at what would sustain protein synthesis to have something like that going on so i wouldn't argue with uh, with that as a potential mechanism for sure very cool. Well, we appreciate that. I think we can take a commercial break, and when we come back, we'll talk more science with Dr. Stu Phillips. You're listening to Physique Science Radio. Hey, guys. Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. 
Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. MyOatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right. 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds. And you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend. And they change depending on which ingredients you add. Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? Add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want. And the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made. Or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. Hey guys, many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of Pro Physique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty, I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him, because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys. All right, welcome back, guys. Actually, before Lane gets into his question about hormones, I thought it'd be an appropriate segue to talk about the upper limit of protein intake because I know we've been talking about um, the lower limit. But uh, I think what happens, and I see this happen a lot with nutrition coaches, and I'm sure Lane has seen it too, with oh, yeah. with new clients coming to him. They say, "Well, I had, you know, I was working with my my former coach. Um, I was, you know, 120 pounds, and I wanted to put on some muscle, so he prescribed me 220 grams of protein a day." Because they, he said that more is better and, you know, and, and they're eating this outrageous quantities of protein. And obviously we know that like, you know, that's, that's a little bit on the opposite end of the extreme. And I know, Stu, that you've written a number of times in multiple papers about what really is the uh, appropriate protein intake for someone, let's say a body composition uh, individual who, who is losing fat. And uh, I know you say the protein requirements increase when you're dieting, but what are the specific numbers for the listeners out there? Sure. Well, so, I mean, let's let's be honest and say that uh, all the numbers that I'm going to give are are estimations, and and that there's individual variability. So mm-hmm. that's my that's my wider statement before somebody goes, oh well, you know, it's this, you know. So, <laughs> in my opinion, in my opinion, in my informed opinion. Um, 
I think for people who are sort of day in, day out, that something around 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram gets the job done. And I'm not saying that, you know, people couldn't consume more. You certainly can. I just don't think that above and beyond that, that your muscle can really pack it away. Because let's remember one thing is that, you know, as Lane said, the way that protein works on a per meal basis is that what you can't use and you can't put away into either muscle or whatever else it's being used for, any other protein that's being made, Mm -hmm. then your body strips off the nitrogen, makes urea, you pee that out, and the rest of the carbon skeleton that's left, you just burn it. And so, you know, people have to come back to, you know, step one in in that situation. But going back then to the alternative or the other situation that you mentioned about weight loss and mm-hmm. being in a negative energy balance. So now we're trying to, we're really trying to lean out. So we're trying to right. lose fat, hang on to as much muscle as possible. So what I want to say there is that, and, and not to let the cat out of the bag, but we do have some <laughs> really cool data coming down the pipe um, that the exercise that you're doing in that situation, so the, the, the tremendous anabolic stimulus that you're providing from lifting weights mm-hmm. in a very catabolic environment because you're consuming very little energy, et cetera, is actually it's working to try and get your muscles to hold on to protein. Right. Yep. But I would admit that higher protein intake, somewhere maybe up to um, like say 2.4 grams per kilogram would be helpful in having your body hang on to and giving your body as much substrate to maximize any sort of anabolic signal that goes on within the muscle. And even in in the most extreme cases, and I'll be honest in saying that I probably never stepped into the type of body fat percentages that you guys deal with. But being in those situations, I think that you're really trying. It's my analogy is it's like taking a cloth and wringing the water out. So you know, in my situation, I wring it until it's pretty dry, and then you know, you guys twist it three or four more <laughs> yeah. times. Right? right. And so it's like you know, I'm like I'm done, and you're like, no, no, there's a there's a few more drops mm-hmm. here, and you're, and you're getting down to body fat levels that you know. Uh, I, for me, I'm like, yeah, I was, I, I never got into that, but I certainly appreciate that anything you can do in that situation to um, get your body to hang on to the last, very last, you know, whatever you want to say, but ounce of muscle and get rid of the last ounce of fat, then you're talking about pretty high protein intakes. Now, I will say this, I have seen some people in fitness competitions and, and getting ready for, for bodybuilding who are, are, you know, four and five protein grams of protein per kilo. And, and, and that to me is it's then it's, you know, if some is good, more is better. And I'm like, ah, you know what? I'm actually not really comfortable saying that that's okay. Right. Right. So, so I sort of come back to, if there is an upper limit, um, in any sense of the word, then it's really, I agree with what are called the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges and say that, you know, upwards of around 30% to maybe 35 to, okay, 40% of your energy coming from protein, I wouldn't go any higher than that. Now, if you're, you know, a a 
eating a lot of food, that's still, that's a ton of protein. It really is. Yeah. Think about what 35% of a regular um, daily, okay, not weight cutting uh, energy intake would be. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot higher than any number I've just told you. So, uh, you know, I, I think that there, there is an upper limit. Um, I don't know how high it is, but I do think that it bears some consideration and particularly in certain situations that if some is good, more is not always better, but I do appreciate you got to put something in the machine. So, uh, and protein as a macronutrient isn't a bad choice. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think, so I think what happens a lot of times in nutrition, and I tell, I tell people this, um, <laughs> people hear, oh, well, such and you know, a lot of this, like a really high amount of this is bad, like say high fructose corn syrup. So we don't want to have any of it whatsoever. And then you hear, oh, well, you know, a modest dose of protein is good. You say, well, then let's eat all the protein <laughs> and no carbs and fats. Yeah. And it's like, Extremists. no, that's, that's not reasonable. You know, um, I've kind of come to the same recommendations as used to. Um, I'll, I tell people, you know, I deal in grams per pound because in the U.S. we're stupid and we're still in the yeah. standard system. I think we're the only ones. <laughs> so, so I'll tell people like, look, there's – there's there's not really well in the UK they do stone which is even more ridiculous. Right, but, that's yeah, uh, I don't I don't know where that comes. I think that's yeah. a very old measurement. Oh, it's really old. Um, <laughs> so you know I tell people um, you know one gram per pound is is gonna get you fine. And if people say, well, is that per lean body mass or is that oh, per? Yeah. I'm like, listen, it's you're splitting hairs. Like if you want to argue with me and say it's lean body mass, then that's fine. Like that's fine. If you're going to do one gram per pound, that's fine. I do about 1.2 grams per pound just because I like eating protein. Like there's no – I don't think I'm getting any more anabolic effect from that or anything like that. I just like to eat protein, okay? And there's no evidence that that's going to harm you either. I think intakes up to like 2.8 to three around 3 grams per kilo have been shown to be relatively safe. Now, I think that there's a, a, a big difference between that and then jumping to something like 4 or 5 grams per kilo – where that hasn't been studied because if there's one thing we know about nutrition, I think that's if you get anything high enough, you can make funky stuff start happening. And so I caution people against going that high. And you know, people will use the 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 the, the logic you said earlier, Stu, of well, you can't really. It's hard to store protein as body fat. That that is true, but. When you get it that high, your body, my guess is your body gets much more efficient and adapt at storing it as body fat because you have less carbs and fats coming in. Now, it's still not going to be the same amount. But also, um, even though the protein may not be stored, what you're doing is you're creating a caloric cushion. And so those carbon skeletons are being burned and then you're more likely to store the dietary fat and the carbohydrate you eat. Would you, would you agree with that kind of line of logic or do, would you have a different thought? Um, I, I agree, uh, and I and I want to just you know I, I think an important point to make is to say that you know you, your body is very clever, and and let's let's come back to you know fundamental. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, Sohi, I'm going to say biochemistry here. That's okay. But, uh, <laughs> but to, to remember, um, if you're a fish and you ingest protein, you excrete the extra nitrogen as ammonia. If you're a bird, you produce uric acid. If you're a human being, a mammal, you produce urea. And so every, you know, you come up the evolutionary scale and every animal has, has developed a way to get rid of excess nitrogen because 
excess nitrogen is in a biological system fundamentally toxic. And so one thing that does happen, and we know this from even from human studies, is that your ability to catabolize and break down amino acids becomes remarkably efficient on high-protein diets, which is probably why mm -hmm. once you've started one, you're kind of locked into it. And, you, you know, you hear from people who are, you know, particularly the bodybuilders, they say, wow, I was on high protein and then I thought, you know, maybe I should go low or somebody said that's going to hurt you and I stopped doing it. And man, I, like I lost quite a bit of weight. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, because all of the catabolic, you know, protein enzymes and systems that you develop, they are still working at, you know, this high speed level to get rid of the urea in your body. And now you've switched to low and it takes time for them to adapt back to a different level and so there is an upper limit and it, it, you know your body gets efficient at dealing with protein so it's not surprising that once you're on these high protein diets you're you're kind of locked in but but i you know and i think one and you've made this point before lane uh, and i've heard you say it and one thing that we've all forgotten uh, look, if you can live with the way you're eating and you know you don't want to eat fructose and you don't want to do that mm -hmm. that's fine if that's the way you want to live but i like to eat fruit i don't know about mm -hmm. you <laughs> and I, I have i think i have a fairly decent relationship with with my food and and i think we've, we've all forgotten this so i i get it you know you guys you guys go through periods where you do some strange things, frankly, in terms of your diet. And that's, <laughs> what, you guys, that's what you guys do, getting ready mm -hmm. for competition. But I hope that there's another point where you sit down with your friends or your family and you have a meal and you enjoy it. Because if you don't, if you kind of hate you know, doing what you're doing, I, I just think some of the enjoyment of food is lost. And so that's you know, one of the things where I come back to and say, it's fine if you want to eat all that protein, but... You know, when you go to an Italian restaurant, are you afraid mm -hmm. to have a piece of bread or order some pasta? Right. If you are, to me, that's a loss. <laughs> right. So did I tell you you're going to like this guy or what? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of uh, quality of life and translating, you know, science into what is really practical from a lifestyle standpoint. So I really like that point you made. Well, let's let's take a let's take a break because I think <laughs> I'm going to take this a little bit different direction because I have a different question I want to ask him because I think – I think you'll have some really good thought-provoking stuff. So let's take a break real quick so we can get our sponsors paid. And uh, we'll come back. And I, I think I have a question that may be a little bit different than what Stu gets. And I, I think you'll like it. Hey, guys. You know me. And you know I love cooking up macro-friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go... That's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal, I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber, and these are packed with 20 grams of high-quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest Bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest Bars today at questnutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram, at Quest Nutrition and youtube.com slash Quest Nutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious. Hey guys, welcome back. I do have... Okay, first of all, I am still here. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> I didn't disappear. Uh, it's just funny to me listening to Stu and, and Lane talk about um, to me, what to me seems like you know very high level science terms and their jargon because you know I don't have that kind of academic background at that high level. So I'm sure for some of you guys as well, some of the things that they talk about is kind of kind of goes over your head. But, um, you know, I can keep up to a degree, and I think it's uh, really useful information. And I'll definitely be jumping in here and there to, to get them to pause and interpret for um, us, us lay folks when, whenever needed. But, That's good, because I, yeah. I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, just science geeking over here, <laughs> and, and we, need, uh, we actually need to make this podcast something that people can take something away from. So I totally appreciate that, Zoe. Right, and like there were a few moments earlier when you said something, I'm like, wait, what does that mean? Like, what, what, <laughs> what is that term? What is that? What? Lane, Lane just went full <laughs> geek mode. Um, so I'll be sure to jump in uh, moving forward, but I do have a question. Um, so, Stu, I know you've been actually publishing a lot of papers. I've um, been staring, staying very busy uh, in that regard. And I saw that you had uh, you were co-authored a paper recently that came out just in April of this year in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, where you talked about um, the recommended dietary allowance um, for protein being set at you know 0.8 grams per kilogram per day for adults, but how at the same time um, the other recommendations for nutrition seems to almost conflict. With the protein recommendations, do you want to talk talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think. Uh, thanks for the question, and I apologize for uh, the uh, alphabet soup that Lynn and I were speaking. <laughs> it's, uh, ATP it's more, and ASCK and mTOR, and you know, it just goes crazy. So, um, coming back to the RDA, I, I think that there's a, a distinction that needs to be made between a minimal recommended intake, which is probably a more accurate definition of rather than the mm -hmm. recommended dietary allowance, the semantics of which A, mean it's recommended, which I would demur with, but, uh, and then allowance means that this is all you're sort of, to me, allowed and beyond mm -hmm. that. So I got an allowance when I was a kid um, and, you know, that's all I got. And so the the semantics of the recommended dietary allowance are maybe what I have a, as big an issue with as right, anything. Right, it's misleading. So, exactly. So it's a, it it I think and clearly and even the way it's defined by the uh, the Institute of Medicine is is a minimal amount to maintain nitrogen balance. And then we you know not to get too caught up in what nitrogen balance means, but to me it doesn't mean too much. And, and then there's intakes that are optimal, that are that are beyond the RDA, that that are associated with better physiological outcomes. And it's interesting that all of the nutrients, the way they used to be defined, was to offset deficiency. And so they were pegged at a minimal level to offset mm -hmm. deficiency, which is really where protein has stayed. Whereas we've realized with some other nutrients that rather than offsetting deficiency, there are actually health benefits with going beyond that intake level. And at the same time, though, I do think that there's, there's two, if you like, downward pressures on a um, maybe policy level as well as a potentially a health level. And the policy level would be that protein is a macronutrient it's expensive. It's the most mm -hmm. expensive macronutrient that you can ingest. So 
it costs more to produce protein than it does to produce carbohydrates. And then the fat sort of comes along with the ride with, with protein. And the second sort of pressure is that most protein in our diets is associated with saturated fat. Mm-hmm. And Steaks. yeah, I know not to not to get into the whole saturated fat and um, because we could do a whole another podcast on that. Yep. But the, the continual downward pressure to keep saturated fat low because, you know, that's going to give you heart disease has been, I think, a, a, an underwriting at least message why protein intakes are also, you know, sort of downward pressured, if you like, and that people have said, you know, we can't increase the because we know that people can do fine on the RDA. And that's the point. Everybody would probably be okay on the RDA. Whether you can Mm -hmm. be better is the main question. And I would argue, and I think you guys would, uh, would agree, you can do a little bit better on the, you know, it takes greater than the RDA. So it, it, it's a hard question to solve, and you know, in the in the paper that that I co-authored along with some really great other authors, they were a real pleasure to work with, um, and it came out with a whole series of uh, other papers in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Um, really looks at what it means to consume protein beyond the RDA, and are there benefits associated with that, and the. Unanimous answer in all kinds of areas is yes. That's that's true. If you're older, yes, check. Yeah. Uh, for satiety, check. Mm-hmm. For weight loss in a lot of situations, check. For nutrient density, check. And and, and so as Bob Wolf, um, who's a, a mentor of mine and a friend of Don Lehman's, um, would point out, there's no requirement for carbohydrate. Yep. And we have a very, very small requirement for some essential fats in our diet. And the only true macronutrient that we, we truly require is protein. And yet we've, you know, stuck with this minimal requirement for a nutrient that has, uh, or macronutrient that has a lot of beneficial upsides. And so that's sort of the way I look at it. And, you know, um, again, my thinking has been shaped by a lot of people. Guys like Bob Wolf, guys like Don Lehman, who it seems uh, even in their retirement, both of them, I run into them now more at conferences <laughs> than, I, than I ever did when they were working. But the more I listen to them, the more it tends to, it makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, both of those guys have, they've sat down and they've thought about this for a long time. And I, I really do think that the the learnings from, from those guys are you know, having a tremendous impact on my own thinking, but I can't, I'm, I'm waiting for the shoe to drop of the quote unquote obvious downside of consuming more than the RDA. And, and I've yet to see it. So yeah, that's it. Sorry. So he go ahead. Well, I was going to say RDA is also the recommendation is also for um, sedentary individuals, isn't it? And, and people don't take that into account when they say, when they start exercising and they start lifting weights and they're like, well, the RDA says I should only be eating this much. And it's, you know, their numbers are way low. Exactly. And I mean, there's, there's, you know, when they say, oh, well, you know, there's, it was the degree of active, et cetera. I mean, there have been no really good studies done, um, at least considered, I shouldn't say that, there's been lots of good studies done, but no studies that have been considered by any of the committees as being evidence why they would make a recommendation for active people. And 
you know, the, the cruel irony there is is that if, in reality, it, it, it is a small percentage of the population who are right. active enough that right. would really yeah. care about that. And, uh, you know, so, so uh, you know, I, I buy that and, and, and I get it. But, uh, you know, even from a general health standpoint for, uh, for sedentary people, I still see the, the, the potential benefits as well. So um, it, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack and I've sort of been at this long enough and I'm not sure that the RDA, to be, to be very honest with you, will, will ever change. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, what I do you do? Yeah, well, I tell you, Stu, um, what Layman always said, and he got to the point, he's like, listen, I've been, in, I've spoken in front of so many committees that just talk and nothing ever gets done. He's like, you're better off just taking your information to the people. That's, you're better off just doing that. Um, because at the end of the day, the government, you know, the government wheels turn slow, slow, and rightly so. You don't want to be able to just hold you know, one study come out and just change every recommendation ever made. But, you know, I think a lot of this stuff stems from kind of the animals. People understand that, you know, nitrogen balance. I remember I had this debate uh, the first time I ever presented at EB with uh, a professor um, who was very upset about uh, the, the data I was showing. And I think he was saying, I think what he inferred from my data was that I was trying to say that the protein requirements are too low. And I said, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that a requirement to prevent a deficiency is a different question than what is an optimal amount for health. Those are two different questions. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this stems from the animal science school of thought because a lot of, a lot of nutritional uh, programs popped up out of crop science and animal science departments. Um, because when nutrition came out, it was kind of like a, a side science in a way. And, and the old animal, animal uh, science thinking has always been protein is the most expensive macronutrient. So we want to, they would literally just take animals, feed them a certain amount of protein and weigh them. And once they found that they gained weight at a certain point, they would say, okay, that's enough protein. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying, th I'm simplifying yeah. things, but so they're, they're literally looking at it as a cost perspective well, we don't live in a third world country. People, for the most part, can afford protein. And so, in my opinion, the question shouldn't be, well, how much protein do we need? Because if you're in a negative nitrogen balance, you are frank deficient. You know, so that amount that you need to prevent a, a or to achieve nitrogen balance, that's just an amount to prevent deficiency. What is optimal for health? What, is op what has optimal health benefits? That's a different question. Right. And also, yeah. I want to uh, say as well for many of the listeners here, where many of us are focused on, you know, we're physique athletes, where we care about body composition. So what's optimal for optimal body? Like, that's very different from, you know, what, what's, what do we need at minimum? Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think one of the points from, from that standpoint, so he is that, you know, and Lane will, will back me up here, is we know full well that if you overconsume, if we look at it from an energetic standpoint, overconsumption of macronutrients, carbohydrate, and fat, you can store fat. Right. But an quote-unquote overconsumption of protein, well, you've got to work biochemically pretty damn hard to turn any amino acid into any significant amount of fat. And that's yeah. not to say that they can't be used as a source of energy. They can, 
But, you know, the tried and trusted method, that, and, you know, I don't need to lecture you guys. You, you guys have figured it out empirically. <laughs> if you're going to stay lean and you're going to keep muscle on, then protein is your, is your macronutrient of choice. And, you know, the two biggest sort of bugaboos that are out there is, A, it's going to cause my kidneys to fail, <laughs> and, and B, it's going to cause my bones to dissolve. So, <laughs> you know, again, we, we, it, it's just, it's, we, we've got to put those to rest. And, and the, the whole kidney failure thing comes from some circular logic that if people who have kidney failure they, they are put on a lower protein diet. And, you know, the circular logic and where it fails is to say, therefore, it was protein that caused the kidney failure. And, you know, I, I've talked to a number of urologists and we're working on, uh, on, a, on a review right now with one. And he said that, that actually people just don't believe that that's true. There's concern mm -hmm. with kidney, what they call hyperfiltration, but there's no suggestion that that's caused A, exclusively by protein, and B, that it's going to give you kidney failure. So, you know, it, it, there is, and even the Institute of Medicine and, uh, and the World Health Organization in their, in their position statements on protein requirements say there is no link. So I, I, I can't say it enough times that people just have to stop saying that because it's not true. Yeah. So, you know, and then the bone dissolving thing. Is, <laughs> that's pretty extreme. I, yeah, well, that's it's, it's you know, and, it, and it's a hypothesis that's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. But quite frankly, it's one that uh, if you're consuming enough calcium and you're getting enough vitamin D, then you're good to go. And, and, and it, yeah, well. I don't I think, know. I'm, I'm tired of railing on it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good, Stu, because that, that comes up a lot. I can remember, like, even a couple of years ago, Lehman was at a meeting about protein, and somebody spent a 10-minute diatribe about how it's bad for bone and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and Lehman grabbed the mic, and he goes, I'm sorry, but that's completely wrong. <laughs> Just you know, And he's usually more subtle about destroying somebody than that. But, um, you know, I think what happens is you're dealing with two things. Um, you're dealing with dogma. So people who have just accepted something as true, um, instead of actually, you know, questioning, does this, you know, does the data support this? And and and, and, that, and that's and that's difficult for people to get past because I mean, Layman told me he's like, listen, my mother still won't eat eggs, even though I've told wow. her yeah. that eggs <laughs> are fine. Like the cholesterol in it, you know, it's not going to cause your heart to spontaneously combust. You know, they're fine. It's like she still won't eat eggs, even though, you know. I've done a PhD in this. I've written a multitude of papers, all that kind of stuff. And so you're, it's hard when people are, are hardwired for, you know, that that this is the truth, that this is written in stone, it becomes very difficult to, to shake them from that dogma. And then with regards to the calcium stuff, I always tell people, like, there's a difference between short-term turnover measures and what actually happens on a complete body level, Right. And so what you see, for our, our listeners aren't familiar, what you see within high-protein diets is you see increased calcium excretion. And so people want to jump from point A to point Z and say, okay, well, if you're getting increased calcium excretion, then you must be having bone loss. Huh. That, that is not the same thing. Is it concerning? Of course. But if you actually look at the data, and so if you actually measure bone, bone density, and actual bone loss, you just don't see it. And if anything, higher-protein diets 
seem to have a little bit more benefit for for bone. Would you now? Maybe going out on a limb. What do you think? What what if I haven't looked at that data in a while, Stu? So I'd be interesting to hear your your thoughts on it. Yeah, look, I, I had a, a little rant on Twitter about this um, a, a while ago, and, and basically I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. So you ingest more protein and then more calcium comes out in your urine and everybody says, look, you're resorbing bone, your bones are dissolving mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Um, when you go and you do the actual measurements and you use some very sophisticated calcium isotopes, uh, a woman named Jane Kerstetter, who's up at Yale, has done a really fine job in showing that the calcium balance, uh, the reason why you see more calcium excreted is because you're taking up more calcium. That's a that's uh. a protein protein mediated effect. And so you, your body just says, well, you know, we've got more than we need and calcium is very tightly regulated. So the kidneys just say, OK, well, we're going to filter this out. That's the way it works. And. There are some people now, um, there's a Swiss fellow named uh, Jean-Philippe Bonjour. There's another guy, uh, René Rizzoli, who would uh, make the strong argument that actually greater protein intakes, again, coming back to calcium is sufficient, vitamin D is sufficient, are actually beneficial for bone health. And so it's a, it's a bone-supported nutrient, but it goes hand-in-hand hand with having adequate intakes of calcium and vitamin D. So... Uh, you know, in, in short, I think that that's the, the mantra that we have to keep coming back to and not to uh, malign Don and his, uh, I'm sorry, but that's, you know, categorically <laughs> incorrect. But that's been the stance that I've um, I've also taken because I, uh, I just think it's, you know, so now I just say it's time for people to stop saying that because it's incorrect. And then just pause and say it, read the literature that's out there and there's been some tremendous reviews done on this um tennis fenton is you know the author on these things and it just doesn't happen so um yeah i think i think i'm done there <laughs> <laughs> so you hear that everybody out there shut up stop saying it. <laughs> yeah that's it just stop just yeah. stop yeah i mean I, I tell people look it's fine to you know this is what i, I talk about like uh fasted cardio you know Yes, if you look at it on paper, people will say, oh, well, you burn a greater percentage of fatty acids from body fat, et cetera. I'm like, that, that's, that's great. When you actually go to measure fat loss, there just isn't a difference. And so it's fine to have a hypothesis, but you actually got to test that hypothesis. That's why when we were doing our studies on leucine, um, leucine content of different protein sources, Lehman said, this is great, but we actually need to test body composition over like a long period of time. Because otherwise, like, it's fine to say that this does different things to muscle protein synthesis, but does that actually translate to a, a difference in muscle mass or body composition? And I think that's, like, a lot of people lose that. They get caught up in short-term measurements. And this is the same thing with measures of hormones that I think we'll get into talking. We're going to have to take a break here, but we'll get into talking next session. Um, that you've, you've kind of uh, gone against dogma there that you know that these short-term rises and falls in hormones from exercise are so critically important when you know it's fine to have that that thought from a short-term perspective from from a hypothesis but then when you actually examine the data it just doesn't hold up so actually let's let's take a break before i get too far on there get our get our sponsors a chance to get some props and uh we'll come back you listen to physique science radio
Hey guys, one of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school level research that is going to contribute to the fitness industry. And 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to BioLane.com, click on the About tab, and click on BioLane Foundation, and you can put your donation in through there. Or, if you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, go to BioLane.com, click the About tab, BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations. You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohee Lee. If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us, read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohee's website at sohifit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. Hey guys, we're, welcome back to Physique Science Radio. So during our break, uh, Stu said, do you think after all these years you can really surprise me? And maybe maybe I can't, but um, I, I do have a question. So Stu, one of my passions since I've gotten out, and even though this wasn't what I studied in grad school, I've become quite passionate about it, is the literature on uh, body fat regain from, from dieting. And so if you look at the literature, um, when I do talks on this, I tell people, how many, you know, I tell people, raise your hand. How many of you guys think we have a weight loss problem? And everybody raises their hand. And I said, you're wrong. Tens of millions of people lose weight every year. The problem is they can't keep it off. So um, if you look at research data um, of people who lose at least 10% of their body weight, within a year, uh, 65 to 70% have regained it or more. Uh, within two years, it's 85%. Within three years, it's 95%, a 95% failure rate. And one of the things I've come back to over the years because um, is that we should be looking for sustainability in diets and not – I tell people if your diet requires a maximal amount of willpower, it's not going to work. Right. And Sohi actually made a great tweet one time. She said um, if the diet you're on, if you can't see yourself you know, on that diet in six months or 12 months or 18 months, you've got to rethink your plan because you're going to regain everything mm-hmm. you lost. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand for, for competition – we, we get down to very low body fat levels, things that are probably not maintainable, and there's going to be some comeback out of that. But for the average person, I think that a lot of these super restrictive, um, you know, whether it be the ketogenic diet or, you know, paleo, whatever the hell that is, or, or, or you know, these, these really restrictive diets that people do lose body fat on but then can't maintain, I think a lot of it just boils down to we need to stop kind of demonizing foods and telling people, hey, sugar is bad or hey, this is bad. And I tell, get people to understand portion size and control yep. and that, hey, you can enjoy the foods you want to you wanna enjoy. Because let's be frank, like when people tell me, I get this all the time, people say, well, I'm cutting out carbs. I say, okay, great. You're never, ever going to eat carbs again. That's what you're telling me. Well, they don't think about what right. happens they never after think the long diet. Term, right. What have you have you ever talked about that or what what is your perspective on that as kind of a research scientist? Yeah, so um what I'll say is that um I'll start out by saying we we've published one sort of large weight loss trial. I had a, a student, uh, Andrea Joss, uh she's now a professor. 
And uh, she came to me. She was actually in our kinesiology program. Then she went away and did her master's um, with a fellow named David Jenkins at the University of Toronto, who you can basically, if you trace back his roots, that's the guy uh, who he and his grad student came up with the glycemic index. So wow. he's a, wow, he's a fairly, fairly famous guy. Yep. And, um, and, and she came back and she said, you know, I'd like to put exercise and nutrition together. And can, I, can we do it in the context of weight loss? And I said, well, we've never really done any weight loss, but, you know, here's my thoughts on this. And so, et cetera, et cetera. It's gone on from there. And so we recruited. In the end, it was something like 90 uh, women. Uh, we put them on different protein diets. We, we, we exercised everybody. That was my only requirement. I said to Andrea, I said, I actually think it's almost unethical to just put somebody on a diet because mm. the rate of relapse, as you said, Lane, it, it's just, it's horrible. Really high. Um, and, and so I said, you know, if, if, if everybody or nobody loses weight, I can tell you that if we make them all lift weights and we get them all to do some aerobic based exercise, that they'll get fitter and they'll get stronger. And I can at least feel good about that. And we, we had some remarkable results. We got some really interesting you know, weight loss, and we, we in one group that had higher protein and did all of the exercise, then they actually gained a little bit of muscle as, mm. as a group um, and, and lost a little bit of fat. Nothing is, you know, massive as some people claim you can achieve, but, <laughs> you know, let's kind of let that one float and say th th that I was pleased with that. And then sure. the, the main issue for me was, is that within, um, you know, sort of six months to a year of, okay, we, these people exited the study. We didn't do follow-up officially, but I ran into a few of these people. How you doing? Or How's it going? And they're like, oh, pretty good. But, you know, all that weight I lost, it's all come back. And mm. it, 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 I was actually, um, I, was, I was pretty bummed about that. I have to be honest with yeah. you. I was thinking to myself, what a drag, you know? So you're right. You're 100% right. It's not the, the loss. People, you know, the losses, that's a no-brainer. People can do that all the time. But it's the maintenance of it. Mm -hmm. And I 100% agree with, uh, Sohi, with your, your comment that mm -hmm. if you're on a keto diet, great. Can you stick with the keto diet? And if you can't, because I think that most of the evidence that we're beginning to see now is that whatever you did to lose the weight – that's what you have to continue exactly. to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know when we look at all this great data that things like the uh, you know the, the National Weight Control Registry when they've generated this stuff, that you look at the behaviors that people engage in, and they just have to keep doing them. And yep. you know the, the sort of I I don't really understand the nuance behind it, but it appears that that set point has just actually been really knocked off. And it's at a different level. And so now what you've got to do to maintain your new weight is pretty much what you did to lose it. And, and not that you can't probably relax on some of the recommendations, but for the, for the most part, you've got to stick with that, with that process. So, you know, that's, that's something to consider if you're enamored with ketogenic diets or you're enamored with paleo diets, fair play. Uh, I'm not going to say one's good or one's bad, but it's it's not the reason. It's a reason that you lose weight. Yep. And you better make sure that you can sustain that because that's what you're going to have to do. Absolutely. And um, actually, if you listen to like the United States government, 
they've gone away from they've quietly gone away from saying weight loss. Mm. They say things like healthy weight maintenance, something like that. Because if you look at the data for weight loss, it it it's like if you look at it's very grim. Mm -hmm. It just says it basically says it if you don't want to ever be fat, never put it on in the first place because you're never getting it off, at least not long term. And so it's funny when I see people post, um, you know, transformation photos, I'm like, that's great. Let me see them a year later. Right. You know Where's the I mean? after after? Right. And so one of the things, so one of the things that we've become, Sohi and I, and, and not to toot our own horns too much, We're pretty good. really interested, <laughs> really interested in is what we call what's called metabolic adaptation. And we have seen some extreme, so I think it's not only the fact that diets aren't sustainable, it's that you, your metabolic rate becomes lowered when you diet. And I, we have seen some extreme cases of people, and we understand that most people underreport all that sort of thing, but we've seen some pretty extre extreme cases of people we know who are sticking to their diets to the point where like right around 1,000 calories can maintain their body weight. It's pretty insane. And so when you get to that level, and especially with yo-yo dieters, I, so he, do you find that to be true? Like with people who have yo-yo dieted yes, throughout their life, it just tends to be the worst. It's really frustrating and so sad. And you know, there's there's not much we can do except you know give it time. Yeah. And, uh, and so actually, one of the things we started doing, just kind of out of a, because look, you're right. When you get to the diet end of a diet, what the data says is okay. Either you're going to regain everything, or you've just got to keep dieting for the rest of your life. And so that neither of those outcomes sound very much fun, right? And so we started playing with the kinetics of things and slowly adding in calories. And we don't have any research data on this, but just from an empirical standpoint, I, I have an example of um, an extreme example of a couple clients. Uh, one gal, uh, Katie Rutherford, um, I'm name dropping now because she's awesome. You guys should follow her. Um, we, we took her, by the end of the diet, she was on about 160 grams of protein, grams of fat per day and very slowly we walked her calories up over time o over about a nine month period and by the time she got done uh, she was at the same body weight but she was consuming by the end over 300 grams of carbohydrates and 80 grams of fat per day wow. um, at the similar level of protein. Now I will say we upped her training volume um, and she gained some muscle mass. But to me, that still doesn't explain like a almost a doubling of metabolic rate, and so we've seen some really interesting stuff that we we we'd love to get studied in time. Hint, hint, Stu. No, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it, it, it's it's do interesting. Do you have a good source of grant funding for me to do this? <laughs> well, actually, so so now we're going to toot our own horn. We do have the the BioLane <laughs> the BioLane Foundation. So I have a, a foundation that's uh, was set up with me by a, a former client who was really appreciative of some of the things I've done and she happens to have you know quite a bit of money and she said you know how do she's like you were such a good coach for me um, how do we make more people like you and I said well I think that education is is the most important thing and so we set up a foundation to fund essentially research on uh, on things that pertain to body composition and 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 fitness which is you know we're not curing cancer or anything but we do have a decent amount of money, so uh, you should have some of your students apply for that. <laughs> but sure. um, in, in any case, um, and I've actually gotten quite a bit of uh, flack for for what we call reverse dieting. Um, and I tell people, uh, you know, look, I, I'm not sitting here saying that this has data to support it, but you know, part of science is you observe something that you can't explain, you ask a question, and then you test it. So um, it definitely seems like there's – so the body adapts on the way down 
in terms of lowering metabolic rate. But it looks like it can also adapt on the way up. And if you mm -hmm. look at some of there's some cursory data on the fringes that seems to support this, but nothing directly measuring it. But it's interesting that you you bring up in your research studies that you in even people who you know they had science based diets, they were eating higher protein, they were exercising, and still regained that body fat. I think that's a pretty powerful pretty powerful statement. Yeah, you know, I, I, I let me just say this is that. Um, the, the phenomenon that you're describing, this reverse dieting, is something that, uh, to be honest with you, uh, I was in contact with uh, – I'd never heard from this guy before, but then he just flicked me a question by email. He's local, uh, you know, trained, did his undergrad sort of mm -hmm. physiology exercise science, but then he was a physiotherapist and then he's – yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, long and the short is he's dealt with clients and he's seen the same sort of thing is that you – particularly the yo-yo dieters and you know if I had a theory on this one of the things is that every cycle of weight loss that they've gone through they've lost uh, skeletal muscle yeah and then they've regained weight well they don't regain skeletal muscle they regain fat and right. so in the end right. you, you get this sort of you know whatever you want to call them but uh, you know uh, thin fat person in other words they're or sarcopenic obesity is the the scientific term to say Small amount of muscle, a lot of fat, high, very high body fat percentage. So, yeah, they're a big person. You put them on the scale. You calculate what their metabolic rate should be based yep. on equations. But then when you actually measure it, you're like, what? That's, yeah. That just can't be right. Mm -hmm. yep. Because the amount of metabolically active tissue that they have now, in other words, you know, their muscle and what, well, what they used to have, it's so small the biggest contributor to probably their metabolic rate is, well, their liver because it's always going and yeah. you know, that's the way it works. But now it's fat, but because they have so much of it. And I always say to people, you know, muscle wins as a metabolic rate, you know, a contributor, not really because it's overly metabolically active. It is in people who are exercising, but because you have so much of it. But now yeah. these people have so little of it that it actually, well, you know, and so the reverse dieting, particularly if you're exercising, you're adding back in a little bit of energy is likely working if it's effective in part, I'm guessing. <laughs> so there were a lot of, a lot of uh, disclaimers there. Oh, sure. Um, because you can put a little bit of muscle back on and you're yeah. turning over proteins mm -hmm. that we know are, it takes energy to make them, energy to break them. And so all of a sudden you see this, little blip upwards in somebody's metabolic rate and somebody goes oh that's just a uh, hundred calories but i'm like that's a hundred calories per day seven days a week 365 mm -hmm. you know so yeah. that adds up and it becomes a really big deal so um yeah i think you're right i i think that people have made these observations and this fellow that i was talking about he sees the same thing and he showed me what he's done for some people, and he said, what do you think? I said, well, look, I'm not going to stand here and say, there's no way that's right. right, because I see some grains of truth in this, and he said, well, they're just, they're all stories, they're all anecdotes, and I said, yeah, well, you add some anecdotes up, it's still not data, right. but it's definitely thought-provoking slash hypothesis generated, yeah. and, and so, and, you know, that's where you go, right? Absolutely, and then, again, that's why I told people who have who have been critical. I said, "Look, I'm not saying that I'm not saying there's research data to support this. There's not, but if I've got something that I think can help people now, 
I can either wait 10 years for it to get possibly published, or I can talk about it now, and then you can decide if you want to do it or not. Um, but yeah, it's 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 some interesting stuff. I think I think what we're finding out is we know. I, I remember when I was going to get into nutrition, and I'm I'm we're going to have to end this up because I'm I'm going I'm going to go way over on time. But <laughs> when I was getting into nutrition, I had somebody tell me, "Why would you want to do nutrition? They've already discovered everything they possibly That's can discover true. in nutrition." <laughs> and I'm like, "We we yeah. like the more I learn, the more we know so little, right. and even just like talking to you, Stu. What's interesting." Is like guys like you and me, because people will ask me, who do I, who should I follow? Who should I follow? And I said, well, you really want to follow people who are willing to say the following, I don't know, yeah. or, or or who they put everything in context. You know, um, there's a great quote by Bertrand Russell, and I always start my my seminars with off with this. I say, uh, only fools and zealots are sure of themselves. Wise people are filled with doubts. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that you know. I think it's easier for people to, to follow those who are very sure of themselves and say, oh, well, this is, you know, it's like we had, um, I was at the Epic Fitness Summit over in the UK, and we had uh, Gary Taubes over there debating Alan Oregon. And, you know, Alan is providing all this data showing that, hey, you know, carbs, yeah, they can cause problems when you overconsume them, but it's, it's, a, it's an overconsumption of calories. It's because carbs are highly palatable, people overconsume them. If you, if you moderate them, if you put them in moderation, you can lose weight just fine. And Taubes is basically just dismissing every study saying, well, that was funded by this or that was done by that. Yeah. And it's like, but he's like, but then he says, well, I'm funding studies uh, that will answer this question. It's like, okay, so let me get this straight. Every study that's done that supports something against your bias was just bought and paid for. But the ones that you're, you're supporting, those are going to answer the question. Well, that's, that's very convenient, you know. And um, I always tell people, look, metabolism is extraordinarily complex, mm-hmm. nuanced, and anybody that says, you know, what pick your pick your problem, that there is a very simple solution to it, um, that would be somebody I, that I would consider a zealot, and I wouldn't listen to. I, I you know what. Um we won't bash Gary Tobbs too much, but uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I will. I will say, like, I think Gary is a very intelligent guy, but I think okay. what 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 you're looking at is somebody who is intelligent but is bought into dogma, and I think that's a problem. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I mean, so we we did a um, a podcast a few weeks ago. I was chatting with uh, Martin McDonald over in the UK, mm-hmm. and I like Martin. Gary he got Gary Tobbs stuff came up again, and he has uh, a clip where he, you know, he said he didn't videotape anything at this conference, but he got a shot of Gary Tobbs and somebody asked him, said, so now you've got the New Sci Foundation, you know, and oh, it's a not-for-profit and it's charitable, blah, blah, blah. So Peter Addy is involved, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to prove that <laughs> their hypothesis is correct. So <laughs> first of all, their mission is to vindicate what they think is exactly. correct. So, you know, you, uh, if you want to sort, if you want to start out in a biased way and you can say, well, it's benevolently funded by some people with obviously a lot of money. But the, right. the, the main point is that he was asked, he said, well, what if the data doesn't support your hypothesis? Will <laughs> you change? And he said, no, probably not. So, <laughs> wow. you know, uh, I mean, so, so what we're talking about in the end then is that it's it's not really it, it's not really science. It's it's a belief, right. and so exactly. if it's a belief, then it's very much that's a faith based construct, and uh, that's you know beliefs are 
you know, religion is a belief, mm -hmm. politics is a belief. And, right. and so in that situation, as my dad once said, uh, two things never to discuss at the dinner table, pardon the pun, mm -hmm. are politics and religion. And so at that point, I just go, oh, okay, well, thanks for the whatever the <laughs> conversation, but uh, we're, we're done, I think. So. Yeah, you can't. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, "You can't reason somebody out of a position they did not reason themselves into." Correct. Yeah, and uh, you know, one more thing that I always say um, is that, you know, look, listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys I don't like being right. Okay, I love to be right. <laughs> I have an ego like anybody else, <laughs> but we should care more about getting the right answer than being right. Because at the end of the day, I want to find out what's best because I want to do that, right? I tell people, look, I went into my PhD. I wanted to find magic foods. Like I wanted to find that because if I found that, I'd be rich. <laughs> and, exactly. um, you know, it just – it doesn't exist. You know, that just simply does not exist. And so, you know, I think moderation and kind of having a reasoned approach is just not as sexy as just – you know, Lane, I know metabolism and complex and everything, but I'm pretty sure it's just carbs. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the problem. You know, and, and like it reminds me of the uh, debate between Bill Nye and a creationist. I can't remember his name. And again, I'm not uh, – as a scientist, I cannot – you cannot – you can actually not disprove the presence of a god. So I'm not going to sit here and offend people's religion. But there's a there's a, a debate between Bill Nye and a creationist. And at the end, they said, what would make you change your mind? And the creationist said, Nothing. And Bill Nye said, evidence. And I think that's the fundamental difference between a scientist and a zealot. Yeah, I like that. And, 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 and so, you know, yeah, listen, if you show me evidence, I'll change my mind. And you can see where I've changed my mind over the years. And, you know, but if you're just, if you're so stuck in dogma, and that's one of the things we really try to get our listeners to do is say, think for yourself. Don't just take what we say and say that's the word of God, you know, that can't possibly be wrong. Like this, some of this is our opinion and we're probably going to get some of it wrong, you know? And I think, I think that, you know, it's academically and kind of intelligently lazy to just hear something and accept it as true. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Very cool. Well, uh, we've taken up, I think, enough of your time. I think we didn't even get through a third of what I no, wanted to get yeah. through. We didn't even talk about training, uh, really. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, well, so as, as I said to, to Martin the other week, and we had the same uh, problem. I want to say it's a problem, but it's not a problem. I mean, I, I, I have to, I'll tell you something. I, I, as you could probably guess, and I can guess from talking to you two guys, is that if we were to sit down and, and you know, at, at, at a dinner table or something where there would be carbs, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> we could we could talk for hours. And, oh, sure. And so... What I'll promise you, and I'll make it on air so everybody can hear it, is that I'll have me back on, and we'll uh, we'll tighten up the program, and we'll get the questions. Oh answered. my God, I'm well, in favor would, of that. We would we would love to have you back, man. You were you were great, Thank and if uh, if there was any problems, it was just me, you know, selfishly uh, expanding on you know science so much. But uh, I think it's you know, uh, again, people. It's been a running theme with the people we've had on the show that they're passionate, um, but they're you know everybody values evidence and I, like that's just something if we can if I could just get our listeners to understand like how important that is to the, the I'll, I'll leave with this line 
Um, I, I, you're familiar with Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist? Yes, sir. So I'm a big I'm a big physics buff in my spare time. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and 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 not that I'm I learning understand. Learning so much about you, Lane. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Today. <laughs> I was at a party the other day talking about black holes and stuff, and people were looking at me like I had a third arm growing out the side of my head. Um, but uh, he said uh, it was in the show Cosmos, and he said the fundamental job or the job of of any scientist is to question even the most fundamental things that we hold true. Because if we didn't do that, we would still be in the dark ages. Right. And I, I think that's so true is to, you know, don't just accept something as is, you know, the challenge dogma. I, I, I think that's a huge thing. And I think like what has led you to where you are today is just literally having questions. And I think there's no better thing for a scientist. I think so too. Ne never stop learning. Well, Absolutely. Stu, I have to say, uh, before we, we started this podcast, I, um, I told Lane, I'm like, man, I'm really intimidated by this guy. You know, I've been following him for a long time, and I, he's, he's a badass. And then now after talking to you, I feel like I'm even more intimidated. And so <laughs> no, no, I'm don't so be, humbled. You know, I, I'm a regular guy. Like, I, you know, I heard Lane say, and I kind of had to chuckle. He goes, well, some profs are like rock stars. And I said this, you know, I'm like, <laughs> look, man, I go down to the corner store and when I buy my milk, nobody asks for my autograph. <laughs> so I might have a bunch of Twitter followers, but I don't have as many as Lane Norton. And I know he'd be, <laughs> I know he'd be recognized quicker than I would. So I, I'm just, I'm a nerd doing my thing, having fun and, you know, living life, man. And, and you said it, Lane, everybody who you've had on your show and all the people who come on, everybody's passionate and that's yeah. i think that's awesome i really i i think that's that's the driving force behind everything that we do and all the grad students that i have and they're the ones who make it fun and their passion you know it, it, it's awesome yeah i mean i tell not to drag on but i, I spoke to a class the other day Stu, of, of students uh, my friend uh, dr jason kaliva um his students who are undergrads and one of them asked me they said what kind of job can I get in nutrition? And I said, you're asking the wrong question. Right, right. Do you love it? Or yeah. does it excite you? Because if you love it and you're good at it, you'll find a way to make money. You know, like I coach bodybuilding for a living, for God's mm -hmm. sakes. Yeah. Ten years ago, that kind of, you couldn't find that job, you right. know? Yeah. So, you know, just be passionate about it and, and you'll find something that, that you can make money at. And uh, yeah, I mean, you've definitely shown that you you've made a living, basically asking questions and and uh, and testing them. And I think that's uh, I think that's awesome. And and I will say, you are a rock star in some circles. My, our friend, our good friend, I would uh, say so. Our good friend Lauren Conlin, uh, she's a uh, an IFBB bikini pro, and uh, also a um, a good friend of ours. And uh, she's doing her masters at USF with Dr. Bill Campbell. Ah. And, She's like, she's like, she said today, she's like, oh my God, you're interviewing Stu? She's like, can I just come on the call and listen? <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, you, you definitely, your work is, is getting out there and it's awesome and we really appreciate it. For, for those of us who chose not to go into academia, um, I really, you know, it's, it's really great to see people who are, 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 are willing to go through the plethora of of difficulties that academics have to do in order to conduct this research. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. My pleasure. It's uh, it's been really great chatting with you guys. Uh, you know, always great to uh, to talk a little science and have fun at the same time. 
Awesome. But well, we won't hold you up anymore, Stu. Thank you so much for coming on. Guys, this has been Physique Science Radio uh, and uh, part one of our interview with Dr. <laughs> Stu Phillips. To be and, continued. Uh, to be continued at a later date. Thank you, Dr. Phillips. My pleasure.